throughout history, there are very few cultures and people that we look back on today with as much admiration and fascination as the Vikings. There have been countless TV shows and books made, as well as an untold number of movies and video games produced so that we might be able to get a small taste of the lives of the greatest warriors in history. Truly, there are almost nothing they couldn't do. From master voyagers to architects, the Vikings were more than warriors. They were master craftsmen, farmers, fishermen, and engineers that menaced the seas and were devastating to any outsiders who were unlucky enough to be in their way. But just like most things from the past, some parts are of the Viking culture are true, and some have been forgotten, while some aspects of their society are completely made up. What's real and what's made up? We're going to find out in this episode, Vikings 2. We're going to keep doing it till we get it right. I'm Scott Parrish. And you're listening to Dying to Eat, the podcast that delves into different cultures of the world and throughout time while exploring the different attitudes about death and food. If you love history, good eating, and fascinating stories, then I have a great show in store for you. So make sure you stick around to the end to see what's cooking this week. Also, I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, TheTailoredHemp.com. Talented Ladies Club tells us CBD can be beneficial for women to alleviate 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 symptoms that they face during their periods. I'm just going to keep going until I spit that out to you there. CBD can help in controlling menstrual pain, reducing bloating, and stabilizing mood. So ladies, when you need a little extra pain relief, or if you have questions, contact thetailoredhemp.com. Now on with the show. Braided beards, horn helmets, and the serpent-like silhouettes of longships cutting through rough ocean waters are some of the most iconic symbols of Vikings in modern media. But these familiar relics of the past may be more cultural myth than cultural memory. The most common myth of the Vikings is their horn helmets, famously portrayed in stage plays, movies, and other forms of media. In fact, the horn helmets were a gimmick made up by 19th century sideshow attractions to exaggerate the barbarianism of the Norse. Even the name Vikings is a modern adventure. Back when they were sailing the seas, no one referred to them as Vikings. They were called Danes or Northmen, which was shortened to Norse. If you were in Germany, you called them Askonami. That meant Ashmen, and if you were in Ireland, then they were known as Dubgale or Fingale, meaning dark and fair foreigners. Whichever name you prefer, it was more of a job title than the name of a concrete group of people. The Norsemen were a collective of several tribes all over Scandinavia, including the countries we know today as Denmark, Norway, Sweden, and Iceland, as well as the Faroe Islands in Finland. Many historians argue that the Viking Age began in Denmark around 725 CE when a group of farmers found themselves facing a problem. Denmark is a heavily forested region made up of a peninsula and several islands all marked with numerous mountains and rivers. It's not easy to navigate, especially for traders carrying their goods and their wares. So the region's woodworkers designed a ship that was big and sturdy enough to carry goods across the ocean, but small and narrow enough to use in the rivers as well. The inhabitants of Denmark 
had been seafaring traders since the Iron Age, but these versatile new ships opened up a whole new world of opportunity. These boats were so awesome that they even used them as roofs on their houses when they were no longer fit for sea travel. Despite this amazing archaeological development, the officially recognized timeline of the Viking Age began about 50 years later, when the first Viking raid was recorded. It was 793, in a quiet monastery in the north of England, a place called Lindisfarne. It was about to make history. Interesting side note, Lindisfarne is also known as the Holy Island. We may have to cover that in another episode, so let me know if you are at all interested, and we'll circle back around to that one. While the Norse had been trading with each other for centuries, a ragtag bunch of sailors had a better plan to get rich quick. Instead of trading, they would go into business of taking. In order to find good targets, they had to follow the money, which was primarily was in the hands of kings and churches, the two most powerful groups in many European countries. Robbing a king would be insanely profitable, but it came with way too much risk. Kings live in castles, literal fortresses guarded by entire armies, and that sounds like a real pain. So Vikings decided to go for the second, much safer option, sack the churches. In places like England, it was completely unthinkable that anyone would dare attack a church. After all, it's a holy place, right? So they didn't really have any guards. The Vikings, though, they were just cool buildings full of unguarded loot that was theirs for the taking. And loot it, they did. Or as the monks put it, the wild heathens trampled upon saints' bones and destroyed God's house. During this first raid on Lindisfarne, only a small group of raiders, made of both men and women, landed on the shores of the island located northeast off the coast of England. During the attack, many of the monks were killed or captured and enslaved. They kept what they wanted, silver, gold, and precious gems, but they also made off with a bunch of religious relics that were completely useless to them but invaluable to the church. So what did they do? They ransomed the relics back for even more profit. These raiders were also businessmen. After all, they knew how to turn a dollar, right? The people of Lindisfarne, on the other hand, picked up the pieces, mourned their dead, and tried to go back to their lives. Many accounts were written following the raid, and one thing they all had in common was the absolute horror at the gall of these strange heathens that came into the house of God and took what they want. One witness claimed that the Vikings had dragons helping them out. The Vikings quickly became legends in their own time, and that legend was part of the reason they were so successful. They were feared, and usually just that enough was all the advantage that they needed. Regardless of the details, Lynn's Farm was a huge win for the Vikings and solidified their new business model of raiding and ransoming, especially at churches. The Vikings continued making regular raids across Europe, leaving behind a path of horrified clergymen. But at some point around the mid-800s, these raids brought them into contact with Middle Eastern cultures, including Muslim Arabs, who had known not only for their extensive trading networks, but also for their detailed record-keeping. The first point of contact between Vikings and Muslim Arabs is to believe 
to have been around 844 when a fleet of 54 Viking ships sailed to Spain, which was under the control of the Arabs at that time. The Arab king, his name was Caliphat. That, that, that may be a familiar name with, for, to you. He was the sovereign ruler at the time. The Vikings had no doubt heard tales from the lands that they had already visited, tales of this king with immense wealth and treasure. Any good Viking worth their salt would have gone to at least investigate, and that's exactly what they did. We can all guess what they found. The raid was a huge success, and again, the Vikings sailed off into the sunset with a fleet full of treasure. That lasted them a good long while, but in 859, they were ready to come back and get some more. Probably figuring that they had given Caliphate plenty of time to replenish his wealth, they set sail for round two with even more ships, and again, they took home the gold and everything else they could lay their hands on. According to one record, their ships were so fully laden with plunder that they sat low in the water. In retaliation, the Arab naval forces intercepted the Vikings on their way home and laid waste to the entire fleet, sinking longships and the treasures that they held. I guess they just wanted to make a good point, right? A few Viking ships managed to escape, and they told their tale when they got back home, at which point the Vikings collectively decided they would probably avoid Spain in the future. Hey, sounds like a pretty good idea from, from my standpoint anyway. But not all interaction between the Arabs and the Vikings were hostile. Travelers from distant kingdoms and nations would rather wander into Scandin would they would often wander into Scandinavia and would often bring home tales of ferocious people of the north. One of these most well known accounts of Vikings came from a man called Ikbin Fallon. Ikbin was a prominent prominent Muslim scholar who often traveled around Europe. He chronicled things he saw and people that he met. His most famous work is called Rasala, which is an Arab word for journal, and in it he recorded the details of his time spent among the group of Vikings who had made their way to the outskirts of Russia. When he first met the Vikings, Ikmen was shocked. He was horrified and fasc fascinated at these, these huge strangers in this new culture. He wrote, I have never seen more perfect physical specimens, tall as date palms, blonde and ruddy. Each man has an axe, a sword, and a knife, and keeps each by him at all times. They are tattooed from fingernail to neck with dark green symbols. Before going on to say, he, he continued with, They are the filthiest of God's creatures. Indeed, they are like wild asses. He also wrote a length about how the Vikings didn't bathe at all and how plethora and they had a plethora of disgusting habits now in the vikings defense most of the world didn't have great hygiene practices at that time but in muslim cultures they bathed every day they brushed their teeth they washed their hands regularly and they washed their clothes and bedding so this was totally new for ikben he was really grossed out what he found when he lived with the vikings in longhouses that were about 20 or 30, 10 or 20 people that all shared like a single bowl of water to rinse their faces and to blow their nose in. They didn't even change the water in between uses. Now look, I'm not going to lie. I'm with Ick Ben on this one. I, I don't want anybody else's snotty water. <laughs> the, uh, the Vikings pushed on eastward in their conquest, eventually coming in contact with the people of Russia and Constantinople, 
which was one of the biggest central trading hubs in the world at the time. In 860, the Vikings tried to sack Constantinople, but it should come as no surprise that this was a spectacular failure. Let's just say that the battle between the Vikings and the Turks was like a mouse trying to fight a lion. But the Emperor of Constantinople was so impressed by the Vikings and how they were able to put up a decent fight, he allowed the survivors to set up a trading settlement in the city and even offered some of them jobs as members of his royal guard. This was a new trend as the Viking influence began to spread outside of Scandinavia. Although some began to settle into trading outposts, many Vikings continued traveling and raiding along the way, and it was one such group that discovered Iceland around 870. They settled the island and became the first Icelanders, the first to write down the oral histories and traditions of their Viking ancestors. Every pop culture reference you've ever seen involving characters like Thor, Odin, or Loki are all thanks to the Icelanders and particularly a man named Snorri Sturluson. But we're getting ahead of ourselves, as Iceland wasn't the only new place the Vikings visited in the latter half of the 800s. Another notable example was Ireland. There were people on the Isle of Arran long before the Vikings landed there, but a little fishing village called Duvlin was about to be transformed. When the Vikings landed in Duvlin, there wasn't much to take. As I said before, it was just a small fishing village, but the Vikings saw something more valuable than a few bags of gold in this place. It was an excellent location for a trading post. They used their connections in Constantinople and across Europe to turn Duvlin into an essential trading hotspot, coercing the Irish to play along under the threat of destruction. This worked out for them for a long while, but eventually Duvlin became so profitable that the Irish were able to use their share of this newfound wealth to kick the Vikings out of Ireland once and for all. This wasn't as large a loss for the Vikings as it might seem. They had already adopted a, a strategy and moved on to new ventures. They were aware that their reputation garnered them a large amount of fear and respect, and after so many years of pillaging and sacking, the reputation was really paying off. Instead of attacking churches and villages, the Vikings were able to go up to new places, announce that they're here, and then wait for all the treasure just to be conveniently carted out to their ships for them. <laughs> now that's a good deal, huh? If you're going to be a bad guy, do it like that. That's, that's some style. This new custom was known as Dangeld, and while it wasn't great for the people they were extorting, I think you really have to hand it to the Vikings for streamlining this process. In fact, they extorted the Franks so many times that the king eventually ran out of money to pay the Dangold, or the Dangeld, so in 911 he paid the Vikings off with land instead, land that would eventually become Normandy, the land of the Norse. This is where I get to brag about my personal connection with the Vikings. I am directly descended from William the Conqueror, Norman King, and the first Norman monarch of England. The Vikings settled into Normandy and began to lean more and more into trading, and raiding became less and less common. 
The Norman Conquest of 1066 traditionally marks the end of the Viking Age as the remaining Vikings became known as Normans and most of them converted to Christianity after conquering England with the help of their allies. All of the cultures the Vikings had originated from, such as Denmark, Sweden, and Norway, continued to grow and thrive, and the new civilizations joined them, such as Iceland and Greenland, leaving behind a rich oral history and legends so iconic that we still recognize them today. Speaking of legends, have you ever wondered where the days of the week come from? It's such a small detail, but one that's so interwoven with our daily lives, it seems strange that most of us really just have no idea what the answer really is. The seven days per week system of marking time is actually invented by the Babylonians, an ancient civilization that occupied areas known today as Iraq and Syria over 4,000 years ago. They originally named the days of the week after five planets that could be seen with the naked eye. Those are Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, plus the Sun and the Moon. This same system was later adopted by the Greeks, who passed it on to the Romans, who later passed it on to the Germanic tribes. This is the part where our old friends the Vikings come in. Sunday and Monday were carried over in honor of the Sun and the Moon, but the next day of the week was named after Tyre, the Norse god of war and eventually Anglo-Saxon accents evolved it into two, so instead of Tyre's Day, we call it Tuesday. The same process turned Odin's Day into Woden's Day, which then became Wednesday. Thor's Day became Thursday, and Frigga's Day became Friday. Saturday still remains the only day named after a Roman god Saturn, the Roman god of time. But the days of the week obviously weren't the only thing that the Vikings left for us. Everybody knows about the Norse gods named Odin, Thor, and Loki thanks to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But these characters are more than superheroes on a silver screen. According to the research archaeologists have conducted so far, the traditions of Norse mythology were baked into everyday life. Since Norse gods were more about personality rather than domain, individuals would each have a particular god that they connected to based on what their own personality was like, as well as what matched their own values, and they'd carry around symbols of that god. Unlike Christianity or even Greek or Roman beliefs, the Norse didn't have churches of any kind. Archaeologists have found evidence of places where certain rituals were performed but they seem to have been multi-purpose sites. Sometimes these sites had remains of small buildings, but often they were outdoor areas with fire pits surrounding a patch of ground. It's believed that the fires were lit so that the smoke would conceal what was happening in the center during certain rituals. Chemical analysis of these sites has also indicated that there may have been ritual sacrifices of both humans and animals, although the details are very unclear. But we wouldn't even know about Norse gods if it weren't for not if it weren't for old Snorri Sturluson. I don't know if I'd want the name Snorri or not. That just <laughs> But anyway, good old Snorri. I mentioned him earlier and that's him that we have to thank for the fact that any of us know who Odin, Thor, and Loki are, let alone for having weekdays named after them. 
good old Snorri is kind of like the Icelandic equivalent of the Brothers Grimm in that he made it his mission to travel around the Nordic countries, gathering the oral histories of his ancestors and finally committing them to paper. Unlike the Brothers Grimm, though, Snorri wasn't writing a collection of short stories. Instead, he put the stories in order, compiling them into one long saga that told the entire mythos of the Norse from the beginning to the end. This book was called Prose Edda, and it's often talked about in tandem with another book that's called Poetic Edda. Although they have similar names and themes, the Poetic Edda is a collection of ancient poems that reference figures from Norse mythology and the authors unknown to us. These two books are pretty much the only surviving sources from before the Viking Age, which is ironic considering that they were both published 200 years after the end of the Viking Age. It's thanks to records like these that we know anything about the Viking culture at all today, including one of the most iconic funerals in history, the Viking Boat Pyre. You guys remember old Icky, right? I was talking about him a minute ago. While he was among the Vikings recording the various details of their lives, a Viking chief passed away, and to Icky's surprise, he was allowed to attend the funeral. According to his journal, the Vikings began by burying the chief in a shallow grave where they left offerings of bread, beer, and a lute to entertain the chief's spirit while he waited to be officially sent off into the afterlife. Over the next ten days, Women of the clans sewed special funeral garments for the chief. This 10-day period also allowed time for one of the chief's family's slaves to, we're going to call it volunteer themselves, as a human sacrifice to accompany the chief in the afterlife. When the women finished sewing the funeral clothes, they hauled the chief's boat up onto shore and a ritual leader, referred to as the Angel of Death, set up a luxurious bed on the deck of the ship while other friends and family dug up the chief. They put him in a new outfit and laid him on the bed of the ship and then surrounded him with gifts of beer and fruits, herbs, spices, the corpses of ritually sacrificed animals, along with a variety of trinkets. When everything was ready, a ceremony was held and the volunteer was sacrificed and placed aboard the boat which was then set ablaze and shoved out on the water. The, the boat and all aboard burned for about an hour before the ashes had been scattered across all of the water and the wind. And that's, in my mind, that's an incredible vision. This single account is the reason most of us recognize a burning longship as being a distinctive feature of Viking funeral tradition, although it's unknown how common this practice really was among the Norse people. For all we know, it could have been a special request for that particular chief or a custom unique to that particular group of Vikings. Unfortunately, burials at sea can be difficult to track down, especially when the boat gets set on fire and you know most of it burns up and eventually sinks. One thing we do know is that not all Vikings were buried at sea. Archaeologists have found a number of burial sites around the Northern Europe area that contain remains of Vikings, and these graves have provided a lot of fascinating new clues to how the Vikings handled death. For one thing, 
Remember how I mentioned earlier that the Vikings sometimes used old boats as roofs on their houses? Well, that's not the only thing old boats were used for. They were also used for burials. Like the funeral described by Icky's journal, these burials involved pulling the boat onto dry land, laying the deceased inside, and surrounding them with offerings, but instead of setting the boat afire and shoving it into the sea, they buried the entire boat like it's this huge, enormous, giant coffin. Even more interesting is the fact that some of the boats were used in this kind of funeral weren't actually even really boats. They were replicas that were made out of stone. I wasn't able to find any information about why this was done, but it seems like the boat-shaped coffin was more of a symbolic thing, so it probably depended on whether or not the deceased family had a boat handy, I guess. Either way, I think it's pretty cool, right? These boat graves were common enough that at least one graveyard has been found containing several boat graves among a collection of regular burials. And there have been cases where more than one body has been found in a single boat. In one rare case, they found a grave that had one boat on top of another. I guess they were running out of land. They did have the ocean right there, though, right? And a couple of matches, I heard. Now, one of the most surprising things that came up in the research for this episode is that Vikings apparently loved board games. It seems to have been really common to have at least one set of a particular game that was similar to chess aboard when they set out on their long journeys to keep their minds sharp and to give them something to do during those long days at sea. The boards and pieces were often made of valuable materials like ivory, bone, glass, amber, proving that they had enough cultural importance to be used as status symbols. These board games also have been found in Viking graves, especially in the boat burials, just like the loot from Icky's account. It's believed that this was included to keep the deceased entertained as they transitioned to the afterlife. Although, like I said when I was talking about the mythology earlier, it's impossible to say how literal a custom like this was. It's entirely possible that the loot was placed at the chief's grave because it was an item that he valued, and it was like a symbolic gesture. Kind of like how many modern Western funerals involve laying flowers on the casket before the grave gets filled in. The same could be said for all kinds of other items archaeologists have found in Viking graves. They found pets, tools, weapons, and trinkets made of precious metals like gold and silver. Well, folks, it's timely. <laughs> well, folks, it's finally time for my favorite part of the show. It's time to get cooking. Now, as I've learned over the course of making this episode, Vikings were known for a lot of things, but fine dining was definitely not one of them. For what I was able to find in my research, they did most of their cooking over a campfire, and it tended to be really simple stuff. So, in honor of the Vikings, we're getting back to the basics with a hearty chicken stew for this week's recipe, though I do want to note that I found this recipe while researching Vikings on a site by the Vikings Answer Lady. Thank you, ma'am. I appreciate your help here. To get started, we're going to need two chicken legs and two thighs with the skin removed, four large carrots, two yellow onions, and one large turnip, all roughly chopped. 
three or four sprigs of fresh thyme, two cups of chicken broth, a half cup of beef broth, a tablespoon of each, salt and oil, two tablespoons of butter, a teaspoon of pepper, and a teaspoon of powdered whole allspice, and a 12-ounce bottle of your favorite dark beer. Let's kick things off by melting the butter over medium heat. Toss your chicken and let it sizzle until it's nice and brown, then set it aside for a moment. For now, heat up the oil, carrots, and turnip in a pot and sprinkle in about half of the salt. Let it cook for um, two or three minutes and then add the onion. When the onion starts to turn translucent, go ahead and add your beer, broth, thyme, allspice, pepper, and the rest of the salt. Wait until everything is completely warmed up and then add the chicken back in and pop a lid on on the whole thing. Now, now turn the heat down to medium low and let's let it simmer for about 40 minutes or until the chicken is cooked all the way through. Hey, now it's just time to serve it up hot and soak up some of that good stew with some bread. As you can see, this recipe is very simple as is most Viking cuisine. It was also the first recipe I made for this podcast. The biggest question I had while working on it still remains. Do you think they really had allspice? Personally, I think it's pretty likely they did as the Phoenicians were invading Greece around this time while the Vikings were raking havoc on the British Isles in France. It seems likely that they would have crossed paths in the Mediterranean considering they both occupied Sicily at similar times. But that's food for thought. Let me know what you think. I'm your host, Scott Parrish, and I'd like to thank you for listening to Dying to Eat. I really hope you enjoyed this episode as we took a deep dive into the mystifying and legendary lives of our friends, the Vikings. This show is made possible by listeners like you. I'd like to give a special shout out to Crossroads Custom Catering, Beth Hart, Jerry Matheny, Chef Enzo, and Katie Martin. Your support drives the show, and we enjoy hearing from you. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at Dying to Eat Podcast. Let us know what topics you'd like to hear. Find future and past episodes on your favorite podcast platform. Make sure to drop us a like, a five-star rating, and don't forget to hit that subscribe button to stay updated on the latest episodes. Until next time, stay lively.